Lord, we want to thank you for your work among us. And Lord, I want to thank you that in your grace and your mercy, you have promised that if we will call on Christ and trust in him, that he will live in us. And so this morning, I'm asking, Father, for the powerful work of Jesus among us, that he would live among us today in a way that we would see his power manifest. Father, I want to thank you that your grace is sufficient even in our weakness. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts through your word. Lord, I pray not only for ourselves, but I ask that for our our partners in this community, the gospel teaching churches that are meeting right now around us, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit among your people. This morning specifically, I pray for Pastor Stephen Uke and the family of believers at Park Avenue. Lord, I ask that they would experience the knowledge of your word and the power of your spirit in a way that would transform their lives and through their lives transform that community. Lord, I thank you for the legacy of faithfulness that that church has had and we know it is your grace at work in them. So Father, I pray that this morning they would experience that and rejoice and be glad because of it. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we have been in the book of 1 Peter for quite a while. As a matter of fact, this is our 27th study in First Peter this year, and you need to know it's our last time um, that we will be in First Peter. Uh, who knows, though, the Holy Spirit could stir my heart. I may start all over next week. We, we don't know how this will work, but as far as he's, he's led me, I don't know why I throw those things in there, but uh, as far as he's led me, I want you to know I'm so grateful for this time in the book of First Peter. Many of you guys know that this is a letter written to a group of Christians who are struggling through a very difficult time in their life. That's why we have titled this series, How to Live When Life Gets Tough. And I want you to know that from the very beginning, I've heard from so many people in our church family who have shared how the themes of this book, how the teaching of this book has really resonated in their lives. I've heard so many of you talk about the difficulty you faced and how God has spoken directly to you in this word. As a matter of fact, near the beginning of this study, I was speaking with one of the individuals from our church, a young man who's been in a prolonged season of unemployment, just a very difficult time. And he and I were talking about the the relevance of this to our lives and to our church family. And I just shared with him, hey, it seems like there are a lot of people going through a really hard season right now. And I want you to know, I think that God has really led us to this because many people are in a season of life that's hard. And he very kindly but firmly responded by saying, I don't know if it's so much that people are in a season of life that's hard or if it's just that life is always hard. And I got to tell you, as soon as he said that resonated with me, life is tough. Your, your, Your life and my life is hard and it gets harder sometimes. Seasons that come and go, but the constant theme is we live in a broken and fallen world. And so we have this letter to us that's written for how we should live as followers of Christ when life gets tough. And so this morning, we're gonna hear the final word that Peter has to say to this group of believers that I really pray will encourage your heart, that will stir you to joy and increased and renewed faith this morning. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter five. I'm gonna begin reading in verse eight to the end of this book. Verse eight says, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever Amen. And then at the close of this letter, Paul probably picked up the pen where he'd been uh, dictating this, in a sense, to a, a secretary or to someone to, to scribe for him, this Sylvanus, who is, who is Silas. And he writes in his own hand in verse 12, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, that's a reference to the church at Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. M will do that at the close of the service. Peace to all who are in Christ. This is the word of God for us today. And here's what I want us to see right off the bat. As you look at verse 8, there's a general observation that jumps out to me. Um, And we'll look at the specifics of verse 8 in just a moment. But generally, I think it's important that we would see that we are called to live like we have an enemy. As you look at verse 8, it seems very clear that that's one of the things that Peter is telling us to, to do when life gets tough, is to live like we have an enemy because we do have an enemy. In verse Verse 8 identifies that our adversary, our, our enemy, is the devil. And the picture we're given of the devil is that he is a roaring lion who is prowling throughout this world seeking someone to devour, to destroy. Have you guys ever seen a lion on the prowl? Have you ever seen that? Hopefully not in, in real life, but you've, you've maybe seen a video. Um, I, I've seen that before, but this week I decided to go online and look at some video of lions prowling. Um, I thought about having it on the screens this morning, but they all end horrifically, and I didn't think it'd be good for the kids to see that this morning. And then I thought actually about prowling myself up here on stage, and, uh, and immediately Emily gave me the no, you don't want to do that. And so I'll spare you the details. If you could just imagine something maybe you've seen before, which is a lion in those grassland plains, maybe in Africa, walking through that high grass, kind of crouched down, slowly stalking its prey, sneakily just kind of slinking along out of plain view, stalking some animal that it's been watching, something it's, it's desiring to attack. As I watched that on video this week a couple different times, and I, and I just imagined there being in that grassland plain, I, I thought to myself, can you imagine walking through that tall grass And knowing that there is a lion that is stalking you there? Can you imagine how scary that would be? Even the possibility of a lion being in that grass stalking you. Can you imagine what that'd be like? Okay, so none of you apparently can imagine what that would be like. So let me just bring this a little closer to home to something I'm sure all of you can relate to. Most of you know how I feel about tree frogs, right? Yeah, absolutely. They are unpredictable in every single way. They can jump nearly any distance in any direction at any given time. And if you have ever looked into the eyes of a tree frog, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt they are malicious to their core. (laughs) 
I am justifiably nervous around tree frogs. And when I leave my house at night, I know because there are more tree frogs on Merritt Island than there are people. I know there are tree frogs lurking around me. I can hear them mocking me and taunting me as I walk out of my house at night. And as I walk out, you, you guys can imagine when I leave my house, no matter if I'm going outside to take the garbage out or trying to go to my car or whatever reason I would go outside, my head is on a swivel. I mean, I am just watching everything around me because you never know, guys. You never know they're trying to take over the world one human at a time and and you never know when they're going to jump out on you I am so nervous now I'm just feeling weird telling you this but I'm so nervous when I go out that I'm just going to get jumped on and maybe it'd be it'd be an attack by a lot of them I cannot imagine with a tree frog making me nervous what it would be like to have a real lion on my tail (laughs) if that was real and you were walking out your door, and you knew there was a lion, you would be a fool to live like you didn't care. To live like there wasn't really a threat. You would be a fool who was throwing his life away if you knew there was a lion outside your door and you chose to ignore the fact and walk forward as though you were stalked by nothing at all. And that's just imagination. The reality is that there is an enemy and he is stalking you And he wants to devour you. He wants to destroy you. And your life is not just a casual stroll. It's a war. Your life is is a war in which an adversary of your soul and our God is seeking to devour you. And the reality is this. We would be fools to go through this life as though we did not have an enemy. And so the first thing I want us to see is that we are called to live each day like we really have an enemy who is really seeking to destroy us. That's why verse 8 starts off with two commands. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Be sober-minded. That, that means to think clearly about something. It's, it's the difference, uh, it's, it's different than being drunk and having your judgment clouded by other influences. He's saying, think clearly about this reality that you have an enemy. Think clearly and don't let your judgment get clouded. And as I was meditating over that this week, there were several ways that I feel like our judgment gets clouded as it concerns our enemy. And let me just throw that out there for you. Just a few ways that we see that our judgment gets clouded as it concerns our enemy. First of all, our judgment is clouded about our enemy when we don't believe we have an enemy. One of the very, very best ways that the devil deceives the people of this world is by convincing them he doesn't exist. You guys know as well as I do that we live in a culture that has bought into the lie that the existence of a real live devil is just the leftover of some time in our world before science could explain the way the world really works. You are, you are a, a fool in the eyes of our world if you think 
think there really is an enemy. And as I started to think about that, the, the fact that you would be ridiculed in our public forums if you said there really is an enemy of God, there really is a devil. As I began to think about how predominantly denied the existence of Satan is, I started to realize there may be no greater influence that the devil has had on our world than he has had in convincing people he doesn't exist. I mean, what better way to destroy people and plan your attack than by convincing them to live as though you don't exist because they don't believe you really do. And our judgment is clouded about our enemy when we don't believe he really exists. The the second thing is that our judgment is clouded about our enemy when we think he exists, but we don't think he's influencing the things going on around us. Here's what I mean by that. We, we may say, I believe there is an enemy. I believe there is a devil, but I don't think he's actually working in my life or working in the lives of people around me. I mean, that's kind of taken it a little bit far, isn't it? Listen, you need to know something, friends. Things aren't just happening. Not in your life and not around the world. There is an enemy working behind the scenes in this world and your life. Listen to Ephesians chapter two, verses one and two. This is a description of what's going on in the life of someone who doesn't know Jesus. And you can look it up some other time, but Ephesians two, one and two says this. You were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following, now listen to this, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here's what the word of God is saying there. There's a course that our world and the systems of our world, there's a course that they are following. And that course is being directed by what the Bible refers to as the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan himself. He is actively influencing a spirit that works actively, powerfully among those who do not obey God. Here's the reality that that paints for us. Things aren't just happening in our world. The political climate that we're in, toxic and caustic and divided, that political climate didn't just occur. Now certainly our flesh is fallen and as sinful creatures, we don't have any problem messing everything up on our own. But we are a part of a greater system, a world system that is influenced by Satan himself and the enemy of our souls. The enemy of our God is at work influencing the things around us. And friend, you need to be clear about something. Your enemy is influencing everything from what you see on television to what you view on billboards driving down the street to what is occurring in the governments of our world to what is happening in the house next door and including our own homes. There is an enemy who is working actively to destroy and devour the lives of people including you. And your judgment is clouded. When you think the enemy is existing, 
but that he's not influencing the things that are going around you. Here's a third way that our judgment's clouded. It's clouded about our enemy when we begin to mistake who our enemy actually is. And here's what I mean by that. We are all too frequently duped into believing that our enemy is our neighbor or our coworker or our parent or our spouse We tend to think that our enemy is our political opposite. Our enemy is some person that causes us a challenge or that is hard to get along with or that has been hurtful to us. We begin to live as though this person is my enemy and then we begin to live as though there is no other enemy but this person. And here's the deal. Our enemy, our enemy is the devil and his army of darkness, And we will not resist him the way we should so long as we are focused on resisting one another. Our our judgment's clouded. When we begin to live like all the people around me are my enemy, that's the problem. You're you're my problem. You're, You're what's wrong. The enemy of God in your soul is seeking to cloud your judgment by deceiving you. He does exist. He is real. He is influencing the things in your life, and he is not the people around you. He is a person who is unseen, but is very real in our world. And Peter says, because those things are true, be sober-minded. Think clearly. Don't let your judgment be clouded. And then he goes on to that next phrase and says, be watchful. The word watchful uh, means to stay awake, means to stay alert. It's actually the picture of someone who's like a watchman on the wall of a city who's looking out over the city, looking for the ways the enemy might be attacking. And he says, listen, as it concerns your enemy, you need to be sober-minded, think clearly, be watchful, open your eyes to see where the enemy is at work. Now, here's one of the things I want us to be careful from. I want us to be careful not to be the kind of people who believe that the enemy is behind every little rock that we stumble over, that the enemy is at work every time we turn around and everything that's going on. I don't want to give the enemy more credit than he is due. I'm not saying that we would call everything the work of Satan directly. There is a world system and there is our own flesh that's at work. But what I am saying is this, since the devil is at work, trying to destroy you, trying to destroy your marriage and your family and your coworkers and even your very soul. Don't close your eyes to how he may be attempting to devour you. Don't be naive to the traps that he's laid in your life. And before we go on, I just, I felt led to take a moment to really consider for your life How might the enemy be attacking you? Just just take a moment. Let's not go past this too quickly. Where, Where is the enemy of God in your soul potentially launching an attack in your life? Your marriage? Your parenting? Your your friends? Your coworkers? your church family, where, where might the enemy be launching an attack to devour your life? What about your own mind and soul, the temptations you have to things like fear, anxiety, greed, doubt, discouragement, laziness, complacency, any number of things. Where might the enemy be launching an attack Might it be through the things you're viewing 
every day, the things you're hearing every day, the influences that aren't just random influences. Where might the enemy be launching an attack? Friend, you are in a war. You have an enemy. He is seeking to destroy you. So live like you have an enemy. Be sober-minded. Open your eyes. Be watchful. Where might he attack? And many of you, as I ask, where might he be launching an attack? Many of you know immediately an area of your life where you see the enemy's fingerprints all over you. What do you do when you see the enemy at work in your life? Well, what do you do? How do you engage in the battle? Do you run and hide? Do you live in fear? Do you tremble and shake? Look at verse 9. Here's how, we, here's how we, as followers of Christ, engage in the battle for our soul. Look at verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith. As a follower of Jesus Christ, here is how you are called to relate to the enemy of God. Don't ignore him. Don't deny him. Don't fear him. Don't play games with him. Don't obsess with him. Resist him. And resist him. How do we resist him? By standing firm in your faith. Now here's what you need to know. When the Bible talks about faith, it's not talking about some generic version of faith. We live in a culture that talks about faith in very general or generic terms. I've seen plenty of interviews with celebrities who talk about the role of faith in their life, but they never get around to saying what their faith is actually placed in or resting on. We have a culture that largely has faith in faith. Let me give you an example. A couple years ago, I was having a conversation with a man, and he and I were talking about several things in our lives and in our world, and the subject of God came up. I have a tendency maybe to introduce that into conversations every now and then, and he responded by saying that he was a man of faith. That was something that I didn't know, so I asked him some questions about his faith. So I asked him, what what do you believe? Tell tell me more about your faith. I'm really interested in, in that. And one of the things that he said about his faith is he said, listen, I don't think it matters so much what you believe, but that you believe. And what he said is all religions are pretty much the same and they all kind of lead to the same place. What matters is not what you believe, it's that you believe. What matters is that you have faith, not what your faith is actually in. And I pretty quickly responded, maybe abruptly, and I said, bro, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. What I said in response is, I said, man, you're a chemical engineer. Some of you guys are engineers in this room. And so, man, you're a chemical engineer. Let me ask you a question. If you believe that you can mix any two chemicals in the world together and make water, does that mean you'll get water? I mean, if you believe it and you just mix random chemicals together, believing they'll make water, will will they make water? The answer obviously is no. You have to believe that, 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 that it's true, but it has to be true in order to justify your belief. And what I shared with him is, man, if you believe the wrong thing, you couldn't blow yourself up, bro. I hope you don't take that view of faith into your job. And then I knew that he was a guy who enjoyed fishing and he has a boat. And so I said, man, what about your boat? What if your boat had a major leak in it, but you still had confidence in your boat? You still had faith in your boat. You knew it had this leak, but you said, man, my boat's never let me down before. I'm going to take 
my boat out on the ocean. I have faith in my boat. I know my boat. My question was this, will your faith in that boat keep you from sinking? The answer is obviously no, because faith in the wrong thing can cost you your life, right? Nothing in all of our experience would lead us to believe that what matters is just having faith. All of our experience tells us that what we place our faith in had better be the right thing or it could cost us our lives. Let me ask you this, friend. How much more is that true of your soul? It isn't just that we're called to stand firm in faith because faith is what matters. It's that we're called to be firm in our faith by placing our faith in something that will actually empower us to resist the work of the enemy, something that actually will lead us into a place of victory. It's not just faith in anything, and it's certainly not just faith in faith. So let me ask you guys a question. You might have this. What is our faith resting on? What is our faith depending on? In order to defeat the enemy, what do we have to be firm in our faith about? Let me fill you in on the answer. The answer is Jesus. Jesus, stand firm in your faith placed in Jesus. Followers of Jesus are marked by placing their faith, by believing the truth about Jesus and depending on the person and the promises of Jesus. The gospel tells us, guys, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he lived a perfect life, a life that you and I haven't been able to live. Although he was tempted by our enemy in every way we have been tempted, Jesus never succumbed to sin. He lived a perfect life and that perfect life led Jesus straight to the cross where he died. But because he was perfect, his death wasn't just any old death. His death as a perfect sacrifice was presented to God the Father as the payment for our sin. When Jesus died, the punishment for our sin was poured out on Jesus. That means when the enemy of your soul, listen, when the enemy of your soul would come before God and bring up your sin and demand that God as a just judge would punish your sin, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and the enemy who's your accuser comes to him and says, what about this sin? God the Father points to the cross of Jesus and says, that sin is punished. There is now therefore no condemnation for my child. See how that disarms the enemy that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose again from the grave in that great display that he as the triumphant king had the power to defeat death, hell, sin, the grave, and the devil himself. Last night, uh, my family and I watched a pretty intense football game. And I know all of you are rejoicing with us this morning. Can I get a witness, Carol? Amen. The good guys won as they normally do. Uh, Anyhow. In the middle of that intense game, my little girl, Mia, leans over to her mom and says, Mom, I am so glad. She's talking about how intense it was to watch that game go back and forth. She says, I'm so glad we don't have to watch the battle between God and Satan. Can you imagine how intense that was? And Emily leaned back over to our little girl and she responded, Honey, the good news is 
Jesus has already won. And guys, the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that if you'll place your faith and trust in Jesus, he not only removes the record of sin, he removes and breaks the power of sin in your life. That resurrection life of Jesus. I woke up this morning and And my Bible reading was in Galatians. Galatians 2 says, I am crucified with Christ and yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. The resurrection life of Jesus isn't just a display and a demonstration of his power. The resurrection life of Jesus is invested into the lives of everyone who will place their faith and trust in him. So if you will trust trust in Jesus, if you'll stand firm in your faith, Jesus Christ will live his life through you. And is Jesus' life more powerful than the enemy of your soul? You better believe it. What proof do you have? The resurrection of Jesus Ultimately, that resurrection power will not only raise you up to live a life on this earth, that resurrection power will give you a glorious, new, eternal future. That's what verse 10 is saying. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love that verse of scripture. God, with all of his grace, has called you as a follower of Jesus to an eternal future of glory because of Jesus. And even though life might be hard right now, life is hard right now, one day your suffering will come to an end. As a matter of fact, Peter has the audacity to say, you'll only suffer for a little while. And when your suffering comes to an end, notice how verse 10 puts it, those last few phrases, God himself, the God of all grace, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As you trust in Jesus and depend on his work in your life, the promise is this. God himself will do a work. He won't outsource it. He will do it himself and he will do it by his grace. And how much grace does God have? It just said, the God of what? All grace. You think you need a lot of grace? If you don't think so, you need to know. You need a lot of grace. And the good news is this. Guess how much grace God has for you? all of it. All the grace you need, our God has, and he gives it to us in Jesus. And it's not deserved or earned or else it wouldn't be grace. And by his grace that you can't deserve or or earn, God has promised that he himself will do it. He will finish the work he's begun in you by his powerful grace. And you don't have to make it happen. Do you realize that? You don't have to make it happen or else it wouldn't be him doing it. He does it. (laughs) 
He accomplishes it. He brings it to completion. You resist the devil by standing firm in your faith. And your faith is in the powerful grace of God displayed for us in Jesus. And by his grace, God himself will do a work that you yourself cannot do and you yourself do not deserve. He will do it because of Jesus. He'll do it in you. He'll do it through you. And he will do it by the power of Jesus. So what do you have to do? What do you have to do? I'll tell you what you have to do. Believe and depend on Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Rest in his grace. It's sufficient for you. Rest in his life and his death and his resurrection. Rest in his power. It's stronger than you and stronger than your enemy. Rest in his promises. Because of Jesus, there are thousands of promises that are true for you. So when the enemy of your life comes, and whatever the form of his attack may be in your life, maybe it's temptation to sin, maybe it's doubt and discouragement, maybe it's physical weakness and a a body that is broken and is breaking down more. I don't know what it might look like in your life. You resist the work of the enemy by standing firm in your faith about Jesus, his person, his power, his promises. So what's that look like? What's, what's that look like? Well, let me just share, you, share with you something that looks like. There are thousands of promises we could go to that are true for us because of Jesus. But verse 10 gives us four descriptions of one great promise that we can use when the enemy comes in our life. And it's hard and we get discouraged and we, we feel like we can't Move on or we'll never get beyond it. Verse 10 gives us four specific things. God himself, the God of all grace, after you've suffered for a little while, it's temporary and will come to an end, he himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. The word restore means to cause something to be in an order in which it functions well. It's a lot like restoring a car, getting it to a place where everything that's broken gets fixed and it works right. Lots of times when cars are restored, they actually now work better than they did when they were new. That's the word he uses there, restore, confirm. That means to make something strong, to strengthen it. It's possibly a reference to being strengthened or confirmed in your confidence that God is at work in you and you are a true child of his. The the next word, strengthen. It means to be made inwardly firm. It means to be committed or determined that in your suffering, God is doing a work and it's to cause you to be more determined, to cause you to continue to be more firm. And then the last word there is establish. It means to be provided with a firm basis. It's another word for establishing or laying a foundation. And so these four words he uses and says, God himself, God himself, by his grace, for his glory, and your eternal good, God himself, he will restore you. He will will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you, lay a foundation. Let Let me give you an illustration of this, okay? I am not ashamed to admit publicly that I was a very, very big fan from a long time ago of what I believe to be the original reality TV show, okay? My dad and I used to watch it. I'm not talking about The Bachelor or anything like that. I'm talking about the original 
this old house, the original reality TV show, this old house. I'm a Norm Abrams guy through and through. And if you've never watched this old house, it's amazing what they do. They go into these homes and they, they spend an entire season of that, that year's season, all these episodes going into this house. And they take this old dilapidated home that has major issues. And one of the first things that they do is they go in and you, you know what they do. They go in and they rip that old house apart. Part. You have this crew of people with hammers and crowbars and they go in and they tear out the walls. Sometimes they take jackhammers to the foundation and, 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 and as you watch that show, it looks like it gets worse before it gets better, right? They tear that whole thing apart. Now, would you imagine, since we've already imagined some things this morning, would you imagine that those old homes could talk? Can you imagine what that house would say? Funny enough, you don't even have to imagine. I actually know what those houses would say if they could talk. You want me to share with you? Okay. Do you? Do, I don't have to. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll, you, since you insist, public demand. Here's what they would say. I wrote it down here. They'd say, ouch. Stop destroying me. This hurts. And since we're imagining that the house could talk, I imagine that Norm Abrams would respond. You want to know what he would say? You, I don't have to tell you. I mean, I, I do know. Here's what he would say. Here's what Norm would say. As they say, ouch, stop, you're destroying me, that hurts. Here's what Norm would say. Hey, 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 hey. I'm, I'm not destroying you. I'm restoring you. Yes. I, I'm, I'm not tearing up your foundation. I'm giving you one. I'm not ripping the place apart. I'm putting it back together. I'm going to make you better than new. And when the enemy of your soul comes to your life, and you need to know he is coming to your life, and life gets hard, resist your enemy by resting in your Savior if you want to know a great place to start with the promises that you can rest in and stand firm in by faith, why not start right there? You want to know what's going on in your life, follower of Jesus? If you've placed your faith in Christ, no matter what the enemy might be up to, no matter what work he may be doing in your home, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, no matter what it might look like or even feel like, some of you feel like you have a jackhammer laid to the foundation of your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you may be calling out, you're destroying me. Hear the word of God. No, child, I'm not destroying you. I'm restoring you. I'm confirming you. I am strengthening you. I'm establishing you. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Jesus, he himself, he himself will show, he will show that he has made you better than new. He's made you glorious. So don't give in. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't doubt and don't be discouraged. Stand firm in your 
faith. Resist your enemy by resting in your Savior. Would you bow your heads and enter into a moment of reflection and prayer? And I want to begin by asking, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Before you leave this place and in this very moment, would you call on Jesus to save you? Would you acknowledge that you're broken and you can't fix yourself? You're sinful. You can't make yourself right with God. And would you acknowledge that God the Father gave his son, Jesus, to live the life you couldn't live, a perfect life. And he died the death you should have died as a payment for your sin, that he was buried and rose again so that he could give his life to you and live his life through you. And would you call on Jesus to save you? If that's you, I want to encourage you, don't leave this place without coming and speaking with one of our pastors. We will be down at the front of this platform at the close of our service we would love to pray with you about your relationship with Jesus for those of you that say I'm a follower of Christ I just want to ask are you suffering is life hard do you see a place where the enemy just might be launching an attack would you take a moment to praise God for what Jesus has done and what he is going to do And some of you may say, I, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm suffering. And you may even say, I'm actually just struggling to stand firm in my faith. I'd like you to pray for me. If that's you, would you raise your hand? If you say, Pastor, I'd like you to pray for me. I'm struggling to stand firm in your faith. You can raise your hand. I want to pray for you. I see those hands. And more than seeing those hands, God sees your heart. You can put those hands down. I'd love to pray with you. Our pastors would love to pray with you. But right now, I want to ask God to work in your heart, strengthening your faith in Jesus. Lord, I want to praise you for Christ, that we have a Savior who's strong and mighty. He's already won the day. Lord, I want to praise you for Jesus. And I would ask that you'd stir the hearts of people in this room those who may be listening over the radio or the internet, God, you would give their heart a deep desire for Jesus to save them. Pray that no one would leave this moment without knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray for those who are going through the fight of their life, some people who feel like they're being ripped apart, foundations are crumbling their life is upside down I pray you would encourage them Lord I ask that my brothers and sisters specifically raise their hand that their heart even now would be encouraged to simply believe that Jesus that Jesus has grace that they need and by his power God himself will raise them up 
Lord, I ask that men, women, and children who are in the hardest days of their life would have a spirit of joy because they will only suffer for a little while. And after they have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, that's you, Father, who's called them to eternal glory in Jesus, you yourself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish them. Lift up our heads with praise for your grace. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.